The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Why don't you grab your Bible? Let's get right to it. And uh, go to Isaiah chapter 9 is where we left off last week. And man, we've got some work to do. Um, Isaiah is a big book and we're just kind of moseying, it seems. So uh, maybe tonight we can uh, gain some ground on the book of Isaiah. You know, uh, one of the things in life, whether you know it or not, that you learn threat assessment (laughs) fairly early. Uh, You know, uh, is that a real threat or not a real threat? uh, You know, I think when you were four or three years old in the preschool, you'd figure out which kids were the threat to steal your toy or to be the boss in the classroom. You'd learn very quickly who your threats were. And um, and, and it's funny because oftentimes things that really look like a threat kind of aren't. But sometimes the things that aren't a threat really are. Um, you know, I, I, I recall that time Tad Slaughter and I, he's um, our missionary there in Vanuatu, and he's home for this season. And he and I were laughing the other day just about um, a thing that kind of remind, we were reminded of. We were having an exquisite meal at Taco Bell one afternoon down in Medford. This is years ago. And, uh, and we were just kind of minding our own business when suddenly this guy kind of came out of nowhere and he was really intense and dressed in army fatigues um, and, um, and uh, just kind of uh, was shaking. And he walked up to our table and pulled out a knife and he said, give me your money. And Todd and I looked at each other, we looked at him and there was something about it that just struck us as funny. I know that sounds horrible and like we're, you know, but truly, you know, this is back when Tad and I were younger and quicker and maybe in a little better shape. And this guy taking me and Tad at the same time, even with a knife, we were kind of like, it just kind of caught us funny. And so we chuckled a little bit and the guy says, I could kill you. And for some reason, I don't know what the deal was, but we thought that was hilarious. (laughs) And we, we burst into laughter. And, um, and right then the guy he just started shaking more, and he slammed the knife on the table and ran out of the Taco Bell. We actually gained a knife in the situation. It was kind of an interesting ordeal. <laughs> um, now, that poor guy was probably, um, you know, had some, some mental issues and some other problems, but somehow, Tad and my threat assessment of the situation, it just didn't seem like super threatening to us for some reason. Um, we were ready to engage the guy if we had to, but wasn't, wasn't really a threat. Now, you take that situation versus, say, like my sister Tammy, very beautiful girl growing up with a girl that was like that as a sister. All the guys liked me because they liked my sister Tammy and Jenny. They, you know, both my sisters, uh, you know, I got lots of friends when I went to high school because of my two sisters. But, but you know, J- Jenny, you know, she was the more calm one. But Tammy, she was a threat. She was a real threat. Like that time that I put Tabasco sauce in her Pepsi when she went out for a run, and then she came back and sligged it down this Pepsi, and she, she you know, her mouth was on fire because I put like a whole bottle of Tabasco sauce in her Pepsi. But after she did that, she went to the sink and was rinsing her mouth out. You know, it was so gross and stuff, and I was laughing. I was a junior high kid. But when Tammy turned around and looked at me right after that, she said, I will get you. Now, I knew that was a real threat. (laughs) I was nervous because Tammy, she had it in her to uh, get me. Well, long story short, the next morning I woke up in in my bed and 
I felt some tickly stuff on my face, and I kind of went like this, and I felt it was this, well, it was fluffy and itchy. And, and then I realized what she had done. She shaved my head while I was asleep at night. Now, this is back in the big, you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s, when long hair was kind of a thing. And I had really long hair, or at least I had it until that night, and then half of my hair was long and half of it was sort of buzzed. Uh, but uh, all that to say, she got me back. She was a real threat. Learning to assess threats uh, is something that is really actually a good thing, and some people are good at it, some people aren't. But here, the children of Israel, they have some real threats that are around them, things that could destroy them completely. Now, we got to remember, when we're reading the book of Isaiah, we're talking about two places, Israel and Judah. The northern ten tribes would be Israel, the south two tribes would be Judah. Jerusalem and King Ahaz and Isaiah, they were more associated with the the two tribes, Judah. Israel was the north, and they were kind of enemies with Judah at that time. You know, it was like a civil war. And so Isaiah is identifying threats, and he's telling the people what they should be afraid of and what they shouldn't be afraid of. And the question is, are the people going to be very good at assessing what their real threats are? Will Jerusalem be destroyed by the Assyrians? Will Jerusalem be destroyed by, um, you know, Romalia and Reason? Remember, we've referenced those names and and the people from Syria. Um, Or were there other threats? You know, as as it's going to shake out, we're going to see in the story, Jerusalem's not going to fall to any of those things at least not at this time period, but what they will fall to is pride and arrogance and idolatry. It's more internal threats that they didn't even recognize. They were things that they loved, things that they thought were really amazing and awesome. Those were the real threats. That would be their real downfall. I wonder if there's things like that, you know, that we assess in our lives as, ooh, that's a problem, that's a threat. But actually it's not. We have nothing to fear of that stupid stuff, but there's other things that are more subtle and more perhaps uh, seem like a friend, but they're actually a real enemy. And I wonder if we have things really not that dissimilar to what the Jews are going through here with pride and arrogance nationally and all that stuff. I think there's much to learn. And, And maybe for you and for me tonight, we could say, Lord, show me what are the real threats in my life, things that could really derail me spiritually or things that are dangerous to me, even physically. Uh, or emotionally. Uh, There's so much out there that can mess us up. And the question is, do you really understand what the threats really are? And uh, perhaps the Lord will show us some of that stuff tonight as he's really, it seems that he's attempting to do that with the Jews. And we left off last week in chapter 8, where remember we, we referred to this on Wednesday, and then I also reminded us on Sunday how, you know, Isaiah says they're going to look to the earth And behold, trouble and darkness, dimness and anguish, they'll be driven to darkness. Hey, by the way, it's Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. Um, They look to the earth, and behold, trouble, darkness, dimness, and anguish. There's there's a happy Earth Day card for (laughs) you. You know, the problem with Earth Day, in my opinion, is if you're celebrating Earth Day because, man, God has made a beautiful earth for us to live in, and man, uh, it's amazing, Uh, then great, celebrate that. The problem comes, we tend to worship the earth as it's, you know, mother nature, and and like um, like we think that we're going to be able to save the earth, uh, you know, and stuff. Brett, well, don't you concern yourself with global warming? Yep, I really do. First Peter tells us the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat, (laughs) and it's going to be completely destroyed. 
In fact, in Hebrews chapter one, right at the end of that chapter, it says the Lord's gonna take the earth like an old vesture of clothing and fold it up and put it away. Uh, That's what the Bible says. Happy Earth Day to you. (laughs) Um, But isn't it interesting that our culture says, oh man, the threat is earth, uh, the global warming and, or, you know, climate change as they've changed it to. And people say, you know, AOC talked about, what was it, 12 years, we're going down. And, and, um, and there's some interesting uh, buzz about how this, this virus, the coronavirus, we're getting what we deserve as humanity because we've been mean to the earth. The earth is paying us back. Even the Pope, if you've been following it, said that uh, yesterday, that the earth is paying us back for our sins. Um, boy, his theology is way off. <laughs> I'm just saying it. Uh, well, Brett, that's the Pope. Isn't he like God? No, that's definitely wrong. If you're raised in the Catholic tradition, he's just a man, and, and, uh, and you better go with the Word of God rather than the Word of man. Uh, but all that to say, our, well, that's one of the things I think we uh, misdiagnose. Is, is, is there a real threat of global warming and us being taken off the earth? We have much greater threats, according to the Bible. The Bible doesn't warn us of that global warming and climate change. It warns us of the pride of humanity and us putting our trust in the earth, <laughs> putting our trust in our ability to save ourselves and our plans and procedures that we figure out how to save the world. The Lord says that's the real threat. And we're going to see that here in Isaiah. So here they are, you know, they, they shall look to the earth, verse 22, and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Wow, that's bad. But in chapter 9, we're going to see Isaiah say, but, uh, man, don't you love that there's, you know, with, with God, there's always something, even though there's all the darkness and all the despair and all that stuff, you know, it's interesting to me that, um, that so many times we get, you know, tied up in all the bad stuff. But I, I love what the scriptures talk about, you know, when, when it says that we, we uh, you know, like Paul even talked about, he said, you know, we, we are troubled on every side, but not distressed. You know, there's always a but not as a Christian um, uh, when we look to this. And so he's saying, you're walking around in darkness, Isaiah says, but chapter 9. Let's take a look. Verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be, as, uh, be such as was in her vexation, when at the first day he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Now, we're going to have some work to do tonight with linguistic stuff. Got to give you a warning. Um, you, with the newer translations, you're probably thinking, what did you just read? You're, some of you are probably flipping through your Bible. Are we on the right chapter here? Uh, because, because verse 1 of chapter 9 sounds kind of different in your newer translations. Um, you know, when it says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea. And the, the, the words there, grievously afflicted, are not in the newer translations. Like, for example, the New International Version says this, I nevertheless, uh, pardon me, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun. Um, You know, that's the lightly afflicted. He humbled them. 
humbled the land of, of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Which one is it, honor or grievously afflict? <laughs> Those two things seem so opposite. How could that translation be that way so different? Well, it's an interesting word that is hard to translate, and uh, scholars disagree. And that's why you'll hear, see different translations. Some will say more along the lines of afflicted grievously or to show honor and glory to. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, I think we have the answer, and, and here's why. And this is, this is one of the things I love to do is, is you always compare the scriptures you're in with other scriptures. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. I say that over and over again because I love how the Bible sort of speaks of itself. And you can find the answers if you're diligent and just look in the scriptures themselves. And we have sort of the answer, I believe, if you go really uh, to Matthew chapter 4. Why don't you flip over there? Keep your finger here in Isaiah 9 and go with me to Matthew chapter 4. And this is where Matthew, the writer of the first gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does a little clarification for us on what, what the translation should say in Isaiah. It says in Matthew 4, 12, we read there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtalim is the Greek New Testament way of saying Naphtali. Verse 14, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of, uh, of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan of, of the um, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region uh, and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Wow. This is the Greek New Testament defining really, and they were 2,000 years closer to Isaiah than we are historically, so they they had perhaps a better understanding of what that translation actually means. Are you with me there? So what did he say? He said that the same things really about the, 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 the way of the sea to uh, Jordan, to Galilee, and then the people which sat in darkness, that's what Isaiah was talking about, suddenly they're in, um, they saw great light. Uh, to them that sat in the region of Galilee um, and the shadow of death, light is sprung up. So that's what it's saying here. Now, let's go back to Isaiah because this is interesting. How did, how did Matthew get that from this? Because, you know, the New International uh, talks about how, you know, the Lord will um, honor, show honor to the Galilee of the Gentiles. The King James says they'll grievously be afflicted. Now, by the way, one of the things that always intrigues me about these translational issues, both are true, by the way. Did you know that the, the area of the Galilee region would, region would be grievously afflicted after the Messiah came? Do you remember? It even mentioned, you know, Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee, the same region. Um, do you remember what Jesus said to Capernaum? He said, you know, oh, Capernaum, you know, you're cursed. Why? Because it, it, would be, it, it was better for Sodom and Gomorrah when they were, you know, doing their thing than it will be for you, Capernaum. What? Jesus is saying Sodom and Gomorrah were less than Capernaum? Yeah. And it's because Jesus did all his miracles there. He did so many miracles there. More miracles did he perform in Capernaum than any other place. And because they did not believe in Jesus, Jesus cursed Capernaum 
and said, you'll be barren and desolate forever. (laughs) So there was a cursing that happened there at Capernaum. And what's amazing, when we go to Israel, that's one of the places I take our group to the ancient city of of, uh, Capernaum. And uh, it's, it's the most beautiful spot on the Sea of Galilee. If I were to build a resort or a city or something, I'd build it right where Capernaum used to sit. But interesting, it just sits there barren. All that's there is a bunch of old ruin from, you know, the first century when Jesus was there. In fact, there's a synagogue in Capernaum that the foundation of the synagogue, is, you can still see it. It's sitting right there in Capernaum, uh, the same uh, foundation that Jesus would have stood on and preached where he, where he uh, healed the man with the withered hand, happened in Capernaum. And so that, that little town of Capernaum got cursed by Jesus, and that's why it sits there a ruin. People go there only to see the desolation and the ruin of the city. It's where Peter used to live. Um, so it's really an amazing thing that that prophecy came to pass exactly like Jesus said it would. So the funny thing about this, even with the King James translation, you can say, well, even though it's so opposite of what the NIV is saying there, it's still true. Um, They were grievously afflicted by the way of the sea. Um, So don't freak out too much on these translation issues. They're never really an issue as far as truth and what have you. We can still see all that. But but um, but either way, um, the the word that's here that's that's been tricky all along is the word kabod. Does that ring a bell? The Hebrew word kabod. Um, that's the word that's used here, and you recognize that the the word kabod means glory or the weightiness, the presence of God. They called the glow that was over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies the kabod. And that's what's being said here. You could almost read it like this. The first, he, he li- uh, lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. And afterward, they did more uh, see the kabod by the way of the sea. <laughs> um, and that's why the, the New International Version kind of talks about how the Lord will um, honor Galilee of the Gentiles with light, the kabod, a glow of light. And, and so, so you Bible students, you all know what this is talking about. Who lived in Galilee? Who declared himself to be the light of the world? Who is the kabod in the flesh? Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9 is about Jesus, the light of, of the world, who would go down to that way of the sea by Zebulun and Naphtali, by Galilee of the nations. Now, that's the flag. Verse 1 flags us. Oh, this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. That, and, and, uh, and some of you know that already because of our study Sunday in chapter 9. We looked at one of these verses coming up. But all that to say, there's, there's some geographical stuff that's kind of fun. And I, I get nerded out a little bit on some of this, so I'm sorry if this is boring to you. But um, you might mark that little phrase, by the way of the sea, uh, there in verse 1. Uh, her by the way of the sea. Um, that's the Via Maris. Uh, the, it's a road that's still a, a way of traveling today. The Via Maris is a road that you can go on that goes all the way back earlier than when Jesus was there. That was a road. It's basically, there's, there were two main roads that went from like, say, down in Egypt, up the Sinai Peninsula, into Jerusalem, into Israel. But there's a place where the road kind of splits off into two that goes up to Damascus and Syria. And those two roads meet back up there. And one is the way by the sea, and the other is called the King's Highway. Um, and the reason that's kind of important is much of what happened in the Bible happened somewhere along the Via Maris or the King's Highway. And when I take people to Israel, the first several days of our journey when we land uh, in Tel Aviv, 
the Tel, Tel Aviv is right on the Via Maris Road, the highway there. And you, you take that highway up by the sea, and we go up to Mount, uh, we go to Caesarea, we go to Mount Carmel, uh, we go all the way up to Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and the whole time we're on the Via Maris, that road, the way of the sea. Uh, the very one that's being talked about here way back in Isaiah's time. Isn't it kind of cool that there's still roads that were, that were there when Isaiah was around? Like, that's just really cool. And then, by the way, you that have been to Israel with me, remember when we crossed the border into Jordan and we go over and see Petra and Mount Nebo and uh, Jerish, that ancient ruin of an amazing city? When we travel on the bus those long hours, we have a long drive on that day. Uh, that highway is called the King's Highway. And that's the other way that goes uh, the other way to up towards Syria. Um, and you, those are two roads you should know about if you want to understand, uh, you know, biblical geography and the way people traveled. Um, some people wonder, why did the children of Israel cross the, the Jordan River from east to west when they went into the promised land? It, 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 geographically, it doesn't make sense to them. Well, you remember, they went up by the King's Highway. Uh, they did kind of an end around uh, on the map. And then they crossed into the Jordan River uh, and went into Israel from east to west because they took the King's Highway. They didn't take the, the uh, Way by the Sea or the Vira Maris. Are you guys still with me on that? I probably brought, brought my maps tonight and showed you some of that. But you can look it up. Look up the Vira Maris and the King's Highway in Israel, and you'll see maps online if you Google it, and they'll show you those two splits. And those are very ancient highways that are still in use today, which is kind of cool. Um, but that's the idea. By the way of the sea, the Via Maris beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, what's going to happen? That's where the light's going to appear. That's where the glory, the kabod. By the way, the Ark of the Covenant was a foreshadowing of Christ in so many ways. We could, we, we've done studies on that. I'm not going to dive into that. But, you know, the, the visible, tangible presence of God was pictured by the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the blood of the Lamb would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, and the Lord said, there will I meet you on the mercy seat. That's where I will meet with you people. Uh, and that was a picture of where Christ would be. And we even talked, uh, I think it was on Easter Sunday, where the, the, the tomb, when they came in and saw the two angels and the folded napkin and all that stuff, it was a picture of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, where, where the Lord would meet us, and that would be the resurrected Jesus. Like, the pictures are amazing. But I love it that um, when, you know, remember when the Ark of the Covenant was gone out of Israel? The woman that gave birth to a child during that time, and she named him Ichabod. Later, there was a movie about a headless horseman, but that's a whole nother. No, I'm just kidding. That was separate. Ichabod. What's the word Ichabod? Kabod means the glory, the light, the weighty presence of God. Ichabod means no glory, no presence. And that's because the Ark of the Covenant was taken out. There was no light. And really, that was, um, you know, it's kind of a picture of Israel during the time of Isaiah. He's basically saying Ichabod. There's no glory. You're in dimness and in darkness. That's, that's what Isaiah has been telling them since chapter 7, uh, how they're in darkness. But he's saying there's going to come the glory again, kabod, and he's foreshadowing that in verse 1, by the way of the sea at Galilee. That's where they'll first see the light. Uh, just great stuff. I, I love how the Bible is perfectly congruent from cover to cover. And it's telling the story. And again, this is why the Jews should have perhaps known who the Messiah would be, um, and uh, that he would, he would come by the way of the Sea of Galilee and end up in Israel, the light of the world. It's great stuff. Well, that's only verse 1. We better hurry. Uh, verse 2. And it says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. And it says, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice, then they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Um, By the way, the word not there in verse 3, thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Again, your newer translations fix that. It's a translational, it's a typist, perhaps, copyist. People say, Brad, I thought you said the Bible's without error. It is. It's without error. It's perfect. But see, here's the thing. You and I don't have the original translation, uh, the original manuscript writing from the hand of Isaiah. We don't have that. In fact, we don't have any of that from the Bible. And if we had that, we'd have the perfectly perfect inspired Word of God. But some people get a little freaked out by this, saying, Brennan, can we rely on this? The Bible's reliable. There are little, what, what is called copyist errors, or typist, if you would, you know, like we would say typo, um, where um, there's actually only one letter difference in the Hebrew text of a not or, or not having not. So your newer translations, verse 3, basically uh, say um, that, that kind of a different. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. Well, did they increase their joy or not increase their joy? Well, the answer is their joy was increased. Why? This is speaking as if it happened, but yet it's talking about the coming of Christ. Their joy has been increased. The light has come. Uh, and that's, this is a foreshadowing of what's about to happen. So that's what's being said here. Um, you'll notice the word not uh, is not there in the original text of the Hebrew. By the way, if you, want, if you really want to read as close to the original as you can, you've got to learn Hebrew. Good luck with that. That's a, that's a lifelong uh, study. Um, the cool thing is, by the way, um, we have so many study aids now to help us with the Hebrew language and, and all that. Um, I love Logos Bible Software. If you're a Bible study nut, uh, you'll find that to be uh, just so amazing. Uh, and you can do all the word studies you want, and you'll kind of see how the original Hebrew kind of puts everything. And, and it's real helpful in getting, you know, it'd be like if, if I gave a sermon and then somebody translated it from, from you, know, uh, you know, English into uh, French and then from French to German. And then, you know, what, what, what would it sound like? Would it, would it really nail perfectly uh, what I was trying to say originally? It would probably get the general idea, but there, it, by the various translations, you start to lose certain nuances because there's some words that aren't even the same or even close. In a lot of languages, there's, there's words that you use that they don't even have a word for it. Or in other languages, they have many words for one word. Like, for example, love. We have one word for love. Uh, the Greek language has many uh, and you could be talking about all kinds of different kinds of love. When you say, I love a hot fudge Sunday," and you can also say, I love my wife. But we go, oh, well, the context tells us those are two different kinds of love. Well, in the Greek language, there, there's, you know, there's different kinds of love. Uh, there's phileo, and there's agape, and there's storge, and eros, which is more of an erotic kind of love. Uh, and so that's, the, that's an example of translational issues. Don't be bummed out or blue when you come across those translational things. It's just part of the fun in studying the inspired Word of God. I hope you see that. Um, But all that to say, verse 3 is a bit of a challenge with the word not. I've crossed the word not out because it's not there in the Hebrew, uh, and you should check it out for yourself if you don't believe me. Um, So um, what is he saying? 
he's saying, you know, the light's coming to Galilee, which is Jesus, and there's going to be joy increased is the idea. And um, verse 4 says, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. It's referring there to an Old Testament story, if you remember in Exodus, the story where the children of Israel were oppressed in the land of Midian as slaves in Egypt. That's, that's a reference there. And even as they would be sort of um, rescued by God, uh, it's going to be similar to that. When they were rescued of slavery, the, the light of the, the Lord is going to come and rescue Israel eventually from their enemies. So this is all foreshadowing of what's coming. Verse 5 continues. It says, For every battle of the warrior is confused with noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Wow. That's kind of a heavy verse. It's describing battle and the warfares that would come. Um, And interesting for you uh, eschatological people, uh, those that love to study end time stuff of the Bible, you'll notice this language uh, speaks uh, very picturesque. This is Isaiah again, with all of his, um, in the Hebrew, you see assonance, alliteration, you see hyperbole, you see all this, you know, uh, you know, um, literary, uh, you know, tactics uh, to paint a very colorful picture. And that's what Isaiah the prophet does. He's second to none in the use of the Hebrew language. Um, but this verse is extremely colorful when he's talking about battle, the battle of the warrior, conf- confused noise uh, and garments rolled in blood, and there'll be a burning and fuel of fire. What is that interesting uh, for those that are interested in end times, uh, eschatological stuff? Because all three of those attributes he talked about in battle are the same three attributes the Bible talks about in the battle of Armageddon, the last battle that would be on the earth. I'll give you just a couple uh, things for you that would maybe want to pursue this. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14 uh, is one of those mentions. Zechariah 14, 13 mentions this kind of battle and the results of battle, along with Isaiah chapter 63 goes into detail about this kind of battle. Um, So some people see this sort of talking both of the, the first coming of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ that when he comes the second time, he's going to come during that time of the battle of Armageddon, uh, that the Bible says is there in the, uh, by the valley of Megiddo. It's, a, it's another place I take our group when we go to Israel. We look over the valley of Armageddon. And uh, what an interesting place that is. I remember years ago, Debbie and I were uh, there up on Mount Carmel looking over the valley of Armageddon, and we were just there praying and reading and just kind of writing in our journals and sitting on this hillside way down kind of away from the crowds. And it was so peaceful. And their birds were chirping and, and it was just this beautiful scenery. And we thought, man, how is this the place where the last battle is going to be fought? And we were both just kind of marveling. This is just so peaceful and beautiful. Right then, we suddenly felt the ground shaking. And, and suddenly we, we, we heard this noise that we'd never heard anything like it. And what it was, it was one of those Israeli F-15s uh, that had come over the backside of Mount Carmel and then right at the top of Mount Carmel dropped right over our heads. I'm not kidding. You could see the rivets in the bottom of the F-15 as it was dropping down below us. And it just shook the rocks that we were sitting on. And we're like holding on to each other. like, 
and we're just amazed. And, and, and then that F-15 went down further still and landed right on an airstrip that was down in the valley of Armageddon. And then another one came, and a couple of them. And then they, they went, by the way, that particular trip we were on, they were bombing up in Lebanon that day. So those, those planes weren't out just on a little tour. They were out, they, they would come, drop in, reload, and then head back up and bomb. So they were actively pursuing, uh, uh, you know, the Hezbollah up there in uh, Lebanon. But all that to say, Deb and I are like, well, this is the Valley of Armageddon. It was um, Napoleon that looked over that valley and said, surely this will be, like the Bible says, the, the place where the last battle will be fought. And he, he knew something about uh, geography and land warfare and stuff like that. But um, that could be a reference here in verse 5 to the Battle of Armageddon, just because of the language uh, looks very familiar to the descriptions of that. So we're talking about Jesus, his first coming, maybe also his second coming, that he's going to be the light, even though Israel's in total darkness, that the light's coming. <laughs> All that to say, he gets more specific in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we looked at that on Sunday. We broke it down into its seven parts. And if you missed that, you don't want to miss that because it's a great verse that describes the Messiah, Jesus, in such profound ways. Well, goes on in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Great description. This is where we know we're talking not just about his first coming, but also his second coming. Because the the son of David, Jesus, remember he's a descendant of David and he has the rightful heir to the throne of Jerusalem because he's a great, 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 great grandson of David, King David. It's great stuff, the the, the way that that, that all this fits together. But Jesus in his second coming will rule and reign and that's what it's talking about here, the, the government of peace. There'll be no end to that. When Christ comes, it'll be peaceful forever and he will establish it uh, forever and ever. And it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts is the idea there. The Lord of armies is, is what that says there. We'll perform this. Um, now the word zeal there, would you mark that if you're a Bible marker? Because zeal, we think, oh, he's zealous. He's high energy, got some chutzpah, uh, gumption, whatever you want to call that, the zeal of the Lord. But the word zeal there in the Hebrew literally could be um, translated as jealous. And I, I have to address this because this, this tells us something about the Lord. Jealousy, or perhaps you might even say, um, you know, a passionate commitment to the people of Israel. Because of his passionate commitment, the Lord of hosts will, hosts will perform this, will, will come and make war against those armies and nations and set up his kingdom, and Jesus will reign on the throne of David because of his zeal or his godly jealousy. Is the Lord a jealous God? Uh, people get freaked out by this. Oprah Winfrey, by the way, those of you that are Oprah fans, she left her faith because of this issue. Do you remember that? On one of her Oprah Winfrey shows years ago, she said, I used to be, you know, that little girl in the church and I sing the songs and and I believed in Jesus and all that. But then she realized um, her her preacher once said, you can look this up on YouTube, Oprah, uh, Jealous God, you can find it. 
And she says, you know, but when I heard the preacher say that God was a jealous God, I just couldn't worship a God or believe in a God that is jealous and has human, you know, weaknesses. Now, the unfortunate thing that kind of derailed her faith, you say, well, Brett, I think she's a Christian. She's not. She's really into new age, and that's kind of her thing. She's got the whole, you know, she's like a little spiritual mentor to millions of women around the country in the area of new age, uh, which is an old lie, but um, it's really sad because the thing that derailed her faith was when her preacher said God is a jealous God. Is God a jealous God? The answer is yes, but here's the thing. Listen carefully. He's not jealous of anyone. Do you understand that? He's got everything. He's all sufficient. He's holy. He lacks for nothing. He's got everything he wants. He's got everything he needs. The Bible's super clear on that. So well, then how could he be jealous? He's not jealous of anyone. He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for his people. That is the Jews, particularly in this context. He's got a jealousy for his people. You know, there's Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other gods, and there's the Assyrians and all these enemies of the Jews. And God says, these are my kids. Don't mess with my kids. I'm jealous for them. Um, I will not let you take them out completely. Um, and the Bible says this in many places. Jot it down in your notes. Deuteronomy 4, 24. It says, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Um, and the context of that is with his regard to Israel and his love for the Jews. He, the Lord is a consuming fire, and he's a jealous, jealous God. Second Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 2 says this, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And God has a jealousy not of us, but for us as the bride of his son, Jesus. Man, what a profound statement that is. So not only does God have a righteous jealousy for his people uh, and a righteous jealousy, that's the Jews, but he's also got a righteous jealousy for the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church. Um, And I love that of God, that he's a jealous God. When he sees people messing with his kids, when he sees um, people hating the Jews, God's gonna deal with that because he's not jealous of them, he's jealous for them. Don't make the mistake Oprah made and superimpose human weakness on God. That's never, 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 never the case. I hope you know that. Well, we see that right here in verse seven, that he's the zeal or the jealousy of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, now in verse eight, we start a new section. Now, remember when we started Isaiah, I said, be, be cautious of the chapter breaks. The chapter breaks are sort of unfortunate, and and they were added centuries after we were given the Old Testament. Um, Thankfully, we have chapter breaks and verses because we can find scriptures easily that way, so it's a good tool. But the chapter breaks, sometimes we we divide stuff up and we don't see the way things should really be divided, perhaps. Um, There's natural divisions, and this is one such case. Now in verse, uh, chapter nine, verse eight, we're changing gears, and we're going into a song Um, And some might call this song a dirge. A dirge? Well, that's kind of a depressing song that just kind of keeps going of bad news. (laughs) And and this is a bad news song. You might call it a country song. Remember country music? My dog got ran over and, you know, my wife left me and my pickup truck's broken down. Like, that's a dirge of just total misery. Um, That's what's going on here. Uh, And Isaiah is going to give us a song, and it's got four stanzas. Uh, to this song. And I'll show you the, the, how we can know that 
that they're, they're stanzas. The way you can spot these stanzas is by a repetitive phrase in the Bible. That's, that's one of the things we'll see. So let's, we'll check it out. So the first stanza, stanza number one, you can mark this one down if you want to give it a sort of a, a title. Stanza number one, Israel judged because of arrogance. Israel judged because of ar- arrogance. Before we get into this, by the way, remember what Micah the prophet said in Micah 6, 8. Um, he said, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee to do, ju- to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Jews were told to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And the Jews were not doing that even close, not even close during this time of Isaiah the prophet. And that's what this chap, this stanza, I should say, of this dirge that we're about to read is going to articulate. It's verse 8. The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. Now, the word Jacob is the name for Israel. Israel is Jacob. Jacob is Israel. Jacob had the, you know, the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. So why does the Lord sometimes call Israel Jacob and sometimes calls it Israel? You'll notice that when Israel is in big trouble, usually it's because, uh, or I should say, when, they call, when the Lord calls them Jacob, it's because they're in big trouble, I should say. And this is the case here. So he says, the Lord has sent a word to Jacob. It's like, remember when your mom used your middle name? At least for me, I knew I was in trouble. Brett, Evan, met her? Oh, no. She called me with my middle name. I'm in trouble. Run for your life. <laughs> that's, that's the Lord when he says, oh, Jacob. And by the way, the name Jacob, his original name, before he was changed to Israel, Jacob means heel snatcher or tricky one or deceitful one. Uh, you that are named Jacob or James, which is another uh, derivative of Jacob, uh, I saw in a Christian bookstore once all the na- those little coffee mugs with names, and then they had these biblical meanings of all the names. Um, and it just looked so great. But you know what? As a guy that studies the Bible, uh, they had to change some names. Because like James, there's a cup there, and it said, truthful one. And I thought, what a funny thing, because that's the exact opposite of what it really means. James actually means deceitful one. So you guys named James. Sorry about that, but it's the truth. Um, but you can carry the cup if you want to. But all that to say, Jacob meant tricky one, and he was. Remember, he lied and deceived his dad, and he was untruthful in a lot of things. But then the Lord changed his name to Israel, which means governed by God. Okay, so that was why God changed the name. And, you know, a lot of the Bible guys got name changes. Remember, you know, kings, uh, uh, pardon me, um, uh, Abraham was changed from Abram to Abraham. Sarai was to Sarah. Uh, Paul the Apostle's name originally was Saul. Uh, you know, and, and um, even Peter, Simon got his cha- name changed to Peter, which means rock, uh, which is, is interesting, the Lord. And, and, you know, Paul was from Saul to Paul. So the Lord was interested in changing names because of the new life he was giving these people. Jacob got that as well, but, but the Lord still calls him Jacob when he's in trouble. And that's, one of, that's the case that's happening here. The Lord sent a word to Jacob. Uh-oh, he's in trouble. And Stanza number one continues in verse nine. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and the stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and join his enemies together. The Syrians before 
and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth, for all this anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Um, what does this mean? In a nutshell, if you're saying, well, we're in trouble, and you know, um, our bricks are all falling down, but we're going to build up with stones. Our, our trees are messed up, but we're going to replant. That's what they were boasting. They were prideful. That's what it says in verse 9. Those people that had that say in the pride and stoutness, stoutness of their heart, can I caution us in this uh, particular coronavirus era where humanity is shaking our little fists at nature and God and the earth or whatever we're saying, saying, we're going to fix this. We're going to conquer this. It's us together. Be careful about that prideful thing. It's the Lord who's the one who heals us. It's the Lord who created our bodies to fight disease. It's God who's Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals us. Don't be arrogant people like these people who were in real trouble and said, well, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're going to do it. And the Lord says, no, you're not. Um, we need to humble ourselves. The Lord is near to those that are of a broken and contrite spirit. Watch out for the we are the world mentality. And we're going to pull ourselves up and, and all this stuff. Nope. Uh, that's not what's going to happen. If we have deliverance, God gets the credit. God is the one who delivers us. And we should have that mentality. These people didn't. And the Lord's hand is against them because of their rebellion. And so the last phrase in verse 12, mark it well, he says, for all this, all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. In other words, not his hands is stretched out like to help them. His hand is stretched out to pound them. This is God's wrath. And his hand is stretched out against them still. This is where we see the phrase repeated, repeated over and over again, which tells us where the stanzas are in this brutal song. Um, we see the end of verse 12. We see, for this anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Look at the end of verse 17. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Look at the end of verse 21. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Look at the end of verse 4 of chapter 10. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Do you see why this is a song that's got stanzas and the chapter breaks sort of break it up in a weird way? Um, that's kind of a, a, maybe a goof of the chapter breaks there. Um, but you can almost see verses 8 through verse 4 of chapter 10 is kind of its own section. It's a dirge. It's a song of real despair. So the first section is Israel judged because of arrogance. That's the first one. Number two, stanza number two, verses 13 through 17. It's the entire nation judged, um, not just Israel, but the entire nation. Verse 13, it says, For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. Now, by the way, this is an idiom we don't really know anymore. But the head was always good. The tail was always evil. And the Lord's saying, doesn't matter. Both the head and the tail are going to be wiped out. Uh, verse 15, the ancient and the honorable. Um, he is the head. And the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for every one is an hypocrite, an evildoer. Every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Whew. Told you this is a brutal song. Um, so stanza number two, the entire nation judged. Old, young, rich, poor, 
widow, child, they're all turned against the Lord according to this passage. And that brings us to stanza number three, verses 18 through 21. And we'll call this, it's a description of wickedness. Um, Check it out, verse 18. For wickedness uh, burneth as the fire, it shall devour the briars and the thorns, and shall kindle the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Uh, Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. They would eat and devour each other. And there's kind of this ugliness. Why is the Lord painting such an ugly picture? Whenever you see this brutality and ugliness, God's telling us about sin. That's what he's doing. He's talking about sin and how they're they're eating their own arm, their flesh of their own arm. That sounds horrible. Um, That's what sin is. Uh, I hope you understand the ugliness of it. I I remember um, uh, telling the story of uh, the Eskimo wolf hunters and how they catch wolves up there because, you know, it's kind of hard out there in the freezing cold to go hunt wolves in the Arctic regions. But the, what they did is they would take this knife, sharp, razor-sharp knife, and they would dip it in, in uh, seal blood. And they would dip it and then fr- put it outside and let that seal's blood freeze. And then they'd bring it in and dip it again and then f- freeze and then dip and freeze. And pretty soon you have this big old pop- popsicle uh, that they would stick in the snow and then next to the Next to that, uh, they would just put a, you know, they would just, uh, they would just stick the, the knife in the snow. Well, the wolf would come along smelling that seal's blood and hungry, looking for food in that Arctic region, would find a free blood popsicle. And the wolf would start to lick that popsicle. And then as he would lick, he would, you know, be almost caught up feverishly into the blood, just licking, licking, licking. But little did he know as he would, his warm tongue would hit that cold popsicle of blood it would start to expose the razor-sharp edge of the Eskimo hunter's knife. But the wolf in the cold and the freezing and licking the ice wouldn't feel that his own tongue was being cut up into shreds as he was licking up eventually his own blood. And he would end up bleeding out and die. And the Eskimo would just kind of stumble up and drag the carcass off, and that's how they caught him. And, and I, I think that's really what the Lord is saying here about their own sin. They're just, they're just eating their own arms. They're eating up each other, and they're, they're rapidly in their own sin, and they don't even see it, but it's the very thing that's killing them. And the Lord is trying to warn the children of Israel. Whenever you have the bloody, gross stories of the Old Testament, understand God is describing what happens when we sin, and it's brutal, and it's supposed to be ugly. And if you're grossed out, good that's what we should be when it comes to our own hypocrisy and sin, pride and arrogance, devouring and eating up each other. That's what the Lord thinks of it. But there's one more stanza. Stanza number one, if you recall, was Israel judged because of arrogance. Number two, the entire nation judged. Stanza number three, a description of wickedness. And then the final stanza, stanza number four, woe to the unjust people. People that were not just They were not doing things rightly. And that's the final stanza here in verse 1. It says, Woe unto them, chapter 10, verse 1, that decree unrighteous decrees 
and right grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, that they may rob the fatherless. And what will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which was come from far? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Brutal verse. You know, this is where I start to recognize our own culture, and maybe even, boy, God forbid, the Christians, and maybe even the religious right and conservatism you know, we have to be careful sometimes because notice it says, woe unto them to decree unrighteous decrees and right grievousness that they prescribed. They'd make up laws that were just wrong and ugly. Well, Brett, that's hardly the conservatives. I would agree that, you know, it's not the conservatives that are arguing to kill babies with abortion. Um, I, I agree with that. Um, and there's things that the, that that side, but what about the conservative side? Well, that's the next thing, to turn aside the needy from judgment to take away the right from the poor of my people. I I do think if we're not careful, um, if you're a conservative person uh, or, you know, whatever, and and forget, you know, uh, politics for a second. You know, the the truth is we should be concerned about caring for the widow and the orphan. Pure and undefiled religion is this, James tells us, to care for the the, the orphan, for the widow. That's, That's what it is. Jesus talked about caring for the poor. Jesus did that. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of times, uh, you know, people say, well, p- get a job or they, they're just a druggie, so don't help them out. Or, you know, they need to pull themselves up and work hard like I have. And we have this sort of mentality and some, there's some truth in that. But there's also a case to be made very clearly in the Bible that we should be caring for the poor and the needy, for the widow, for the orphan. And that's something we really work hard at at Athey to do um, with tithes and offerings. When we get the tithes and offerings, a good portion of that goes to just for caring for the poor. And we're looking to help people. It's such a tricky day that we live in because there's people that are professional poor people that go from church to church asking for money and kind of play this game. Um, and uh, there's a whole nother side of that argument. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And there's a truth there too. But finding the people that are really in need, that's the goal. The people that really cannot help themselves, that are really, you know, ailing physically or, you know, destitute and down and out. Like, that's where the church, we should come alongside of people. And uh, during this coronavirus, we're looking for people that we can really help and come along. It's kind of revealing some of the people that are really in need. And it's, it's need as a church to be able to, to come alongside of those people. And we're doing that. Um, I hope that we can do better at that. And I hope you're doing that personally. Um, there's this temptation in America to say, I've got mine, I've got my house, my stuff, and that's all that matters. Forget all those people out there that are living in tents uh, on the side of the freeway or in Portland. Forget about the homeless. Forget they're just druggies that don't have jobs and they want to be that way. Be careful. That attitude is sort of similar to this. They turned aside from the needy, from good judgment, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, the widows, that they may be their prey. They'd prey on the widows and that they may rob the fatherless. That's the orphan. Um, what are you going to do in the day of visitation, they, the Lord says there, when, when, when basically you, you're in trouble? So we need to have compassion on the poor and needy. That's something we should all watch out for. Well, let's quickly wrap up verse 
uh, chapter 10. Now we come to a new section. You almost could say chapter 10 should start in verse 5. Um, now he's turning his attention from Israel to the Assyrians, um, which are ultimately going to be the tool God uses to wipe out the northern 10 tribes of Israel. Um, and so we see the Lord kind of addressing that situation. He says, verse 5, O Assyrian, um, by the way, the Lord endured the Assyrians for 700 years. He allowed them to be a powerhouse for 700 years. But the day is going to come where the Lord's going to squash them out. But check this out. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in mine hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno as Carchemish? And is not Hamath as Arpad? And uh, is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdom of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Okay, so what's going on here? The Lord's saying the Assyrians, um, you know, judgment's going to be upon Syria, but God's going to use Assyria um, to judge his nation, his people, Israel. Um, uh, and the Lord says in verse 6, will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to the prey? Does that, does that remember, remind you of something we learned last week? Remember there in chapter, um, in chapter uh, 8, verse 1, we, we learned one of Isaiah's kids' names. Um, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Remember that longest name in the Bible? Um, and what was his name? It meant to run to get spoil. Remember that? To take a prey and a spoil of people. And Isaiah said, that's what's going to happen. And here, once again, the Assyrians are going to come to take a spoil, to take a prey. This is what the Assyrians are going to be for God, to, to use them as a tool. And, um, and yet, Assyria better watch it because God's just using them as a tool. And he's eventually going to take them out as well. But he's using them in the meantime to discipline his people. Um, yeah, the, the list of cities in verse 9, the thought, you know, Jerusalem would fall just like you know, they thought that the, the Assyrians thought that Jerusalem would fall just like all the other cities. Kalno as Carchemish, Hamat as Arpad, Samaria as Damascus. Jerusalem's going to fall just like those. But question, did Jerusalem fall to the Assyrians? Almost, but not quite. God protected Jerusalem. Remember, the Assyrians took the northern ten tribes and then they surrounded Jerusalem, but failed in their besieging of Jerusalem and then went home with their tail between their legs. Um, it would be the Babylonians who would ultimately be the tool God uses to wipe out Jerusalem. Just remembering your history. But God's sort of talking about this, you know, um, what he's going to do with them. Verse 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and upon Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. So God's going to use them, you know, um, uh, but, but the Lord's going to take them out. Just like, you know, for, for a season, he's going to use them as a tool, and then he's going to toss them aside and crush them. Assyria. Kind of brutal. 
what would it be that would cause the Assyrians to be wiped out? Well, it tells us, the Lord says, they have a stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. What's a high look? It's an attitude thinking you're amazing. You're amazing. You have a high look. Um, the Bible's full of this stuff. Uh, jot them down. Psalm 18, 27 says this, for thou wilt save the afflicted people, but will bring down the high looks. Uh, also Psalm 102, or pardon me, 101 verse 5. The Lord, it says, Whoso privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. The Lord says, I will not suffer a person with a high look or a proud look. Um, in Proverbs 30, verse 13 says the same thing. Um, it says, there's a generation of how lofty their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a way that people carry themselves thinking they're all that, and the Lord's against that. Um, you know, that's something we should be careful of because um, as Americans, we are known to walk with a high look. People around the world say, oh, that's an ugly American. And people say, well, why do they, how do they know we're Americans when we're walking around Europe and they identify, oh, there's an American. It has less to do with your Nikes and your clothes, and it has more to do with your high look. Um, the rest of the world kind of sees an arrogance in us, and I, I do worry about that sometimes. We carry ourselves differently. But the Lord is against that, and he says, Assyria, I'm going to use you to discipline my people, but after that, I'm going to crush you because of your high looks that you have against the Jews. So that's interesting. Well, verse 13, For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasure, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand, my hand hath found as a nest of the riches of the people, as one that gathereth eggs that are left. I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. In other words, um, the Assyrians are saying, you guys, this is like stealing candy from a baby, or eggs from a chicken coop. It's easy. Uh, and they're going to boast and say, look, we can do this all day long. And nobody even opened the mouth or peeped. There was not a peep out of any of our enemies. But, verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should take itself against them that lift up, or as the staff lifts it up itself, as if there were no wood? God said, are you kidding, Assyrians? Uh, is, is, a, is a saw any good just sitting there on the ground or do you need someone to actually be the one sawing? The Lord is saying, you guys are just a tool and you're in my hand, the Lord's saying. They're saying, we could wipe out anybody we want to. The Lord's saying, no, you can't. You're just like a, 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 a saw and I'm using you as a tool to cut. Um, or, you know, uh, the ax. You're, does the ax chop wood by itself? Nope, there's gotta be the lumber, uh, you know, the, the woodsman using the ax. And God's saying, I'm the one doing all this. You're not. You're just a tool. Verse 16, Therefore the Lord shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. And under his glory he shall kindle a burning like a burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. The light of Israel is clearly Jesus. He's going to come and rule and reign uh, in the nation. So again, Isaiah's tricky because he's talking about the Assyrians and, I, and, and the people of Isaiah's time. 
but he also reaches into when the light comes, the Messiah, Jesus, um, and, he, and his gaze goes further than the local story here into when Christ comes, his second coming. Um, and the Lord's going to, you know, do this in one day. The day of the Lord is, by the way, we're talking about there. By the way, Jesus being called the light of Israel, John chapter 1, verse 9, John chapter 9, verse 5, we know this to be Jesus. Well, it says, and, verse 18, shall consume the glory of his forest and his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them or count them. They're going to be chopped down like a forest. Verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such are as escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but it shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob unto the mighty God. For though thy, thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. So basically it's saying eventually the Lord's going to drive all the Jews out of the Holy Land. And he did. By 587 BC, 586 BC, we saw the Jews driven out uh, and uh, the Babylonians, the Assyrians took all the Jews. But there would be a return of the remnant. And if you recall, when we were in that section, and we'll be back there when we're in the book of Daniel and other places, after the 70 years of captivity, the Lord would return a small remnant. And it would be about 50,000 people, if you recall, when they would return uh, after the captivity. So that remnant is being described in verses 20 through 23 of the Jews that would return uh, to Jerusalem. Verse 24, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwelleth in Zion, or Jerusalem, shall uh, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall, shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. Now, here's where your studying of the Bible pays off, if you remember. The Lord's saying, okay, so Syria is going to come up against Jerusalem, but they're going to fail. Um, and I'm going to, the Lord says, I'm going to deliver them like, and he refers to a couple places in the Bible, the very end of verse 26, like in the manner of Egypt. And we remember Pharaoh and the plagues of Egypt and how God lifted up his wrath against them and delivered the Jews. But does anybody remember, quiz time, see if anybody there in your house can answer the question. Um, the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, who was the leader God used there to destroy um, those people at that time? Anybody? Gideon. If you said Gideon, you uh, get the daily double <laughs> for the day. No, no that's right. Gideon uh, was the one who God raised up in Judges chapter 7 at the rock of Oreb to deliver the children of Israel miraculously. And that's what God's saying. I will deliver you from the Assyrians like I did. Do you remember how God delivered the, the Jews from the Assyrians during that, the Hezekiah's reign there? Remember they went to bed that night, 180,000 Assyrians were circled around Jerusalem uh, and the Jews were freaking. They were shaking in their sandals saying, we're going down. 
They went to bed that night. When they got up the next morning, they went to look over the wall at the 180,000 soldiers to see what was going on, and they were all dead. They were all laying there dead on the fields outside of Jerusalem. Do you remember why? One angel came and slaughtered them all. Uh, People think angels are these little things that get wings when bells ring and, you know, just cute little fluffy things, you know, just floating around like butterflies. One angel slaughtered in one night 180,000 soldiers of Assyria. Um, any questions? You know, it's like, like that's how God delivered them. And that's what, that was being predicted right here by the prophet Isaiah. Well, um, verse 27, and it shall come to pass in that day that, that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Um, and uh, he has come to Ai, or um, Ait, uh, which is another name for Ai. Remember the Battle of Ai, if you remember Jericho and Ai? Um, he has passed to Migron and Michmash, and he hath laid his car- uh, up his carriages, and they are gone over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Rama is afraid, of, is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galim, um, ca- cause it to be heard to Laish, o, o poor Anathot. Um, uh, uh, Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Gibim, uh, Gavim gather themselves to thee or to flee. Uh, as yet shall remain at Nob that day. Uh, he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughters of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Basically, Isaiah is predicting... Um, the Assyrian attack, um, and basically placing all these geographical locations of what the Lord's going to do, where they're going to flee. Um, and some of these places are interesting. We could talk about AI. You know, Anathot is one of the cities of refuge, if you remember. Nob is actually right next to Jerusalem on today what we call Mount Scopus, which is uh, overlooking what is today Jerusalem. And so the, the, he's just going over some of the, the geography of where the Assyrians would flee and what have you. Verse 33, behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with terror uh, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down and the haughty shall be humbled um, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. This is basically what's the Lord saying that the the Assyrians are going to attack Jerusalem, but the Lord's going to cause them to fail and they'll be running for their lives. Uh, you know, after that slaughter that we talked about with the angel and all that. So all that to say, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to use Assyria to judge my people, but then Assyria is going to get judged and they're going to be run out of town. Um, You say, well, Brett, what does that have to do with us? Boy, so much. Do you realize the Lord that protected Jerusalem and and slaughtered the Assyrians? Do you realize the same Lord is, he's the same today, yesterday and, and forever? today and forever. He, he never changes. And, and there's coming a time where it's not going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be the whole world. And God's going to send his, his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. You can superimpose the story of Assyria and Jerusalem into what he's going to do with all the world. And that's where you read the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, talks about the tribulation period. And there's going to be sort of a besieging in its own way with um, uh, the, the nations of the world. And And uh, the Lord has that same kind of wrath that he's going to pour out upon the world as he did in these stories. 
And man, we can talk about those parallels, and we will as we continue in our study through Isaiah. So there it is, chapter 9 and 10. We'll pick up in chapter 11, Lord willing, uh, next week or this weekend. Let's pray as we close. And so, Father, as we continue this study through Isaiah, we see, Lord, those same kinds of attitudes and actions that those people had in those days with us today. Lord, as we face the COVID virus and the coronavirus issue, we see the tendency for humanity to think that we can save ourselves or pull ourselves up and we're the ones who bring salvation. But Lord, we we humble ourselves before you tonight. And we know you're Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals us. And we do pray that we would get through this virus and that we'd be able to get back to life as usual where we could go to church again and and uh, be out of the threat of getting sick and our older folks who are more vulnerable or people with vulnerabilities. Lord, we, we do look forward to that day and we do pray for healing and for blessing. But Lord, we don't, we don't look to ourselves. It's not us who solve these things. You're the one who brings good things. So we look to you. Keep us humble, Lord. Help us to care for the poor and the needy. Help us not to have a high look of lofty attitudes. Lord, that was the downfall both for the Jews in this story and also for the Assyrians. Lord, help us to be humble before you with a true humility. You tell us, Lord, if we humble ourselves in your sight, then you will lift us up. You tell us, Lord, that you are near to them that are of a broken and a contrite spirit. So I pray, Lord, tonight as we close out this service that you'd work those attitudes into our own hearts. Bless the people who've tuned in tonight. Bring good fruit, Lord, into their lives from tonight's study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 